from the Gospel of John, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. If you were here last week for Easter, you'll remember that Father Rodriguez was speaking about this idea of a personal encounter with Christ and the change of life that follows. And today, as we look at our gospel, we're going to be picking up that same thread, and we're going to be looking at how an encounter with the resurrected Christ changed not only Mary, which we talked about last week, but all of the disciples, uh, perhaps especially Thomas. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that faith is a process. No one is born a saint, and often the holiest people you know had the roughest beginning, right? St. Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for the Romans, profiting off his own people. St. Paul was busy dragging Christians out of their homes and persecuting them, imprisoning, torturing, even murdering them. And as you see in our text for this morning, not one of the disciples was a hero of faith before encountering the risen Christ. As a Christian, our faith is a process, and it grows and it develops. And we're going to be looking at this development through the lens of doubt. Now, doubt isn't something that we often talk of in the church, at least not in the churches that I was in growing up. Having a lack of faith, not believing, harboring doubts, it's kind of that thing that, um, you know, nobody really mentions because one of the big purposes of us gathering is faith. But if there's anything in the church that we don't talk about, there's anything in the church that's taboo, that hides under the surface and lurks in all of our hearts, then it just grows and festers. Um, I promise no illustrations about my sons, but I'm breaking the promise right away. Um, <clears throat> and I, I wasn't planned. But there's this book that we have for, for, my, for our boys that we read to them, and, uh, and it's about a dragon. It's written by, I think his name is Jack Kirby. And the, the whole premise of this book, the whole story of this book is, is there's this mom who, who says that there's no such thing as dragons. And the little boy finds a dragon, he shows the dragon to his mother, and mom says there's no such thing as dragons. Well, the dragon gets bigger. Soon it's sitting on the table eating his pancakes, and soon it's blocking the house, and soon it's actually carrying the house on his back. All the while, the mom is saying, what? There's no such thing as dragons. And the point of the book, even for children, because they understand this, is that anything that isn't spoken about grows and grows and grows until it's unmanageable, until it's an enormous problem. And so today we're going to be spending a little bit of time talking about doubt and how we as Christians encounter and deal with doubt. Let's look at our gospel together. A little background of this, of this text. Uh, as our gospel opens up, it's still Easter Sunday. And just that morning, so again, this is the same day that Father Rodriguez preached about last weekend. It's the same day. Just that morning, Mary had encountered Jesus she was changed, and she ran to tell the disciples of as an eyewitness. Now, as Father Rodriguez mentioned last week, her, her testimony might be sketchy to some people, right? I mean, in that society, a woman's testimony was not admissible in the court of law, and she was known for having her issues. But the disciples knew her. I mean, look to the person to your left or to your right. This would be like that person coming to you. Don't really do that. Um, but that would be like that person coming to you and saying, I have seen the Lord. You know, they, they, Mary sat in on the teachings of Jesus. She sat at his feet. They traveled together. You know, they were, they were friends. And yet, as Luke describes this encounter, they dismissed her 
they dismissed her witness as an idle tale. And honestly, it's really no wonder, is it? I mean, let me ask you, how many people do you know personally that have bodily risen from the dead? Right? Anybody? That you know personally that you've witnessed them in person rise from the dead. I mean, that was, and that was just as uncommon a thing then as it was now. It's not like, you know, that they were, it's not like they were so um, primitive just because they lived a couple thousand years ago that they didn't know what it looked like when somebody died. There's, there's an accompanying odor and also other sorts of details we don't need to get into. They knew when somebody died, and they've never, they'd never seen somebody risen from the dead either. It would be as uncommon then as it was now. Even the disciples only saw it one time, and that's when Jesus raised who? Lazarus, right? But that was Jesus. So who's, if Jesus is the one who's dead, who's going to raise him? Not likely. And so the disciples had a rational reason for their doubt as I have, as you have. You know, there's all sorts of rational reasons when we come against faith that we encounter that can cause us to doubt, right? The Bible speaks of miracles, not as some kind of metaphor allegory, but as a fact. How about this one, the virgin birth, miraculous healings or exorcisms, the resurrection, and even if the Bible's testimony has ever been a stumbling block for you and a cause of doubt, Let's look at a whole host of other rational objections. Here's one. If Christianity is true and God wants us to have faith in Him, why wouldn't He just appear in the sky and tell everybody to believe, right? Seems rational. If Christianity is true, why are there so many other religions with people who are very devout? Ever thought that one? I'm alone. Um, If Christianity is true, what about evolution? Or the, any of the other myriad of things that we learn in hard sciences, right? It can go on and on and on, right? All of these rational reasons for doubt. And not only that, but many of Christianity's claims cannot be empirically verified. What do I mean by that? Well, they can't be, they're not observable, testable, repeatable, or falsifiable. That's empiricism, right? I mean, how can you do that with the resurrection? I mean, be honest with me. Have you ever experienced these sort of rational doubts when you've been approached faith? Have you ever encountered new ideas or questions that you didn't have ready answers for? I'd be willing to bet that you have. And if I'm right, what did you do about it? What did you do about it when you encountered these doubts? You see, when the disciples heard Mary's testimony only Peter and John actually went to the tomb to look. And you know, maybe that's easy for us to dismiss because in our text in John, they're right back in the same room huddled with the disciples in fear. But I don't want to discount their willingness to go and see, to go and look. Because while all of us in this room encounter rational objections to our faith, there's a stark difference between seeking answers and being content with being an armchair atheist that just accepts all of these doubts without any resistance, watching your faith ebb and slide away. You see, the difference, this willingness to pursue the truth, is something that Anselm called, uh, he, he spoke of it as faith seeks understanding. It's a posture. Fides quaerens intellectum. 
You could define it as an act of love of God that is seeking a deeper knowledge of God. It's a posture of pursuit. And it's actually responsible for the, this, this posture of pursuing and wanting to find out and looking for reasons for God and examining the evidence is actually responsible for the modern sciences, sciences that have been used to critique the existence of God. Here's what I mean. You ever hear of Francis Bacon? He's a philosopher, founder of modern science. He's the one who actually introduced empiricism and induction. You know what his motivation was? It wasn't to disprove God, it was to seek Him. What he wrote was, he said, a little philosophy, and by that he meant, that's before we broke it all apart, right? He meant science. A little, a little sciences inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth of philosophy bringeth a man's mind about to religion. It's posture, it's pursuit. Faith seeking understanding. You know, the only difference between someone seeking answers and the one who's content to let their faith slip away may be faith that is as small as a mustard seed. It might be the tiniest faith. But as Christ said, even that amount of faith can move mountains. You know, rational objections are no immovable obstacles to faith. Every single point that I brought up, there are books and books and books and books that are written about them. It's, it's not an immovable obstacle. So that's rational objections. But what about the emotional ones? Here's what I mean by emotional ones. Uh, before, obviously before I was married, um, I had a couple roommates. Um, and, and, and one of them's name is James. Uh, James and I were roommates for about three years. We had worked together for a time, uh, a really good friend of mine, brilliant brilliant mind. And he was an atheist. Might, might still be an atheist. And we would go round and round about this stuff, um, as friends do, and it was always friendly and cordial. Um, but one day he stopped me in his tracks and he said, you know, I think, I think I'm done with this. I said, oh, okay, what, you know, what's going on? He's like, you know, even if an, he's, he's like, I've got to be honest with you, even if an angel appeared in this room right now and shown all about and said, God exists, he said, I would know I was having a hallucination. That's rock solid, right? Well, here's something you don't know about James. James has been an atheist since he was four years old. And the reason he became an atheist is because one day he went to wake up his dad in the morning and his dad didn't wake up. And from then on, it was impossible for James to believe in a good, loving, kind God. See what I mean by an emotional objection? Even C.S. Lewis, who uh, I'll quote every chance I get, had his difficulties. You know, um, it was either last year or the year before that we did a Linton Bible study on the problem of pain, right? C.S. Lewis's book talking about suffering. You all remember that? Well, after C.S. Lewis wrote this wonderful book talking about all the reasons that we suffer, he lost his wife. So he lost his wife, Joy. And it was sudden. And then he wrote a very personal, moving tale about it, A Grief Observed. And you can watch his struggle with faith. Now, this man's a brilliant man, committed Christian, who had actually written on this subject, but wrestled with it. You see, 
The disciples had not only this rational objection of Jesus' resurrection to deal with, they also had to wrestle with Jesus' death. They had to wrestle with suffering. You know, we talked about this on Palm Sunday. One week earlier, they're parading into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and celebration, you know, perhaps believing that Jesus would overthrow the Romans and establish God's kingdom as a visible theocracy and government on earth. But now here they are a week later in hiding, having just watched Jesus tortured and murdered by crucifixion. And you, you, know, you, you have to be wondering what's going through their minds. Maybe it's something like this. God, I thought you were good. I thought that you cared for me. So why is this happening? And then the reasons, right? Maybe you don't care for me at all. Maybe you aren't good. Maybe you aren't there at all. You know, this is, this is the millennia-old question of theodicy. And it's a genuine struggle with this question that has become an obstacle of faith for thousands and even possibly millions of people. And if you're anything like me, you've also wrestled with this, haven't you? You've got our rational doubts, but you also have theodicy. You also have our emotional doubts. You know, perhaps you had a plan or some expectation that life was meant to be different, good, or even pleasant, and your life was upended by sudden tragedy, a betrayal, a sudden death, a loss of means or mobility. And it became fodder for doubt. So again, the disciples have their objections, right? They have both their rational and emotional reasons for doubt, just like you and me. And by cowering in this room and hiding, their faith or lack thereof is on full display. But then what happens? What's the transformative moment for them? Well, you look back at our text, Jesus appears in the midst of them. Jesus appears bodily through a locked door. He comes into their midst and he encounters them personally. And a few things happen that are key to faith. And I want you to key on, in, on this moment, this episode of Jesus encountering them. Because what ends up happening before this, these men are broken, defeated, despairing, possibly cowardly. And after this, these men go on to be bold proclaimers and preachers of the gospel that are martyred almost to a man. So what happened in that room? Well, they became Christians. Key in on the text, there's a few things that happen. One thing is that Jesus tells them three times, peace be with you. My peace I give unto you. That's what he's referencing back from earlier when he was telling the disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take care, I have overcome the world. The first thing Jesus does in this transformation is he reminds them that he's got things covered. You know, when Jesus died, he wasn't idle. He was in hell. Not because of his own sins, because he was marching through it and preaching to the spirits. Read in 2 Peter that, and nothing could stop him. He was conquering and defeating sin, death, and the devil. And so what Jesus was doing, what he earned, is what is the peace that he passed on to them. So Christians, as you encounter Christ, the first thing that happens is that you get the bigger perspective. God has this, and he has me. It's his peace, and I can enter into that. And something else happens. He breathes on them. Now, 
That might seem odd to us, but how was life given to man in Genesis 2? Do you remember? What did God do to create new life? He breathed on them. So the first thing that happens is Jesus gives them peace. The second thing is he gives them new life. This is what happens to us, by the way, when we're baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. We are ontologically changed. We are new beings. New creation is what we're called. And then a third thing happens. Once they have been assured of God's peace and are recreated, they are commissioned. As my Father sent me, so I am sending you. The third thing that happens is they are given a mission. They are given something to do. They're not built to sit back and cower. They're built to go out into the world and conquer. And it's really an incredible thing. And honestly, this really perfectly encapsulates what it means for you and I as we become Christians. But one disciple is not present, is he? One disciple misses this whole thing, right? It's Thomas. Now, we don't know where Thomas is, and we don't know what Thomas is doing. What we do know is that when Thomas comes back and he sees this change, uh, possibly in the disciples, and he hears that they've met Jesus, he protests in incredibly strong words. You know, our English translation says that uh, in his protestation, Thomas says, unless I place my hands into his you know, into his nails or place my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's not the Greek. The Greek is ekbalo. It's shove. It's a violent term. I will never believe, Thomas says. It's the strongest protestation that you can imagine. Now, we don't know, again, we don't know why Thomas did. You know, maybe, you know, Thomas is called the twin, right? Maybe he's used to cases of mistaken identity. I mean, we don't really know. But what we do know is a week later, the eighth day, a week later, Jesus returns, and this time he's come for Thomas. And this is where things get really personal. You know, this is, this is what we talk about, what Father Rodriguez was talking about last week when he said, you know, personal encounter with Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. Because when Jesus encounters Thomas, he answers Thomas according to his doubt, Right? He gives him a very personal answer, and in that, he re- he's able to redeem him. What does he do? He says, Thomas, place your hands. Place your hands into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And here's why this personal thing matters. Um, when you encounter Christ, He is going to answer you according to your shame. You know, I think there's something intuitive with all of us. This is my final point. There's something intuitive with all of us that when we sin, we're not just sinning against ourselves or against others. Every sin that we do is, has a vertical component, doesn't it? Every sin you do is not just a sin against you or a sin against your neighbors. It's a sin against whom? God. There's always a vertical dimension. That's a relationship that's broken as well and that needs healing. And because of that dimension, what Jesus does whenever he redeems anyone personally is he answers them according to their shame. Why? Because shame is always the third obstacle and possibly final obstacle for us encountering Christ. Even if we have our rational objections answered and our emotional objections are somewhat satisfied, 
Shame can keep us from entering into the fullness of the presence of God. We can hide from the light and flee from exposure. And so when Christ heals us, what he does is he answers us according to our shame, and that's how he enters into the deepest parts of us and transforms us fully, top to bottom. He answers Thomas according to his doubt later. He'll answer Peter, because you'll remember Peter denied Jesus three times. You remember that? And so what does Jesus do? He sits down with Peter, and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It's personal. And by personal, I don't mean private, right? We have a corporate body here, and we're gathered together in a corporate relationship, but it's personal, and that when Christ encounters you, it's, it's unique to you. You know, we talked about this idea, like, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I bet if you ask a hundred people, you will get a hundred different answers. Why? Well, because my marriage is probably different than yours. My relationship with my boys is probably different than yours. My friendships are probably different than yours, aren't they? It's personal. So as we reflect on what it means to be Christians and called into this new life in Christ, I would encourage us, consider whether or not your faith is the type that seeks understanding or if it's sufficient for you to sit on the bleachers and let the Christian life go on in front of you and pass you by. Consider your rational objections or your emotional objections, and most importantly, consider offering to God the reasons for your shame and that you would avoid Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You wrote in Scripture that You have counted every single hair on our head. You know us by name. God, You care for us all individually, just as you care for us as the corporate body of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open us up to receiving you and to continuing to pursue what it means to have the fullness of a personal relationship with you that can change us into the men and women that you have called us to be. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.